everyone. Welcome to another episode of Crunch for the Mythos Manual. I am your host, Leslie Wisniewski. I help produce this podcast, and I'm sitting down, per usual, with our game master, Caldrick David. The Crunch Golem. Stop trying to give us a catchphrase. This is an informational segment, <laughs> sir. Control your creative catharsis for your narrative segments. Um, hi, everybody. In case you aren't familiar with these segments, we're going to talk more about the logistical aspects of the last two episodes, dig into some topics in case you're running your own homebrew, or just curious to kind of get a peek behind the curtain about how things work. Yeah, we're talking about episodes two and three today. Two and three. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Strong episodes, you know, big episodes, lots lots happening. Yeah, there's, some, there's a mystery afoot. S- some real endgame stuff starting to unfold here. Here at episode... Two and three. Two and three. Yeah. Not really. Not okay. really. Uh, well, starting off, we're, we're hanging out in Avuba a little longer than we anticipated. When the PCs first arrive, they're set to uh, leave for the jungle the next day. But then it turns out, due to all of these zombie attacks, the warehouse with all their supplies is now inaccessible. Yes. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that... After setting up that there's zombies in this town, they would have to confront the zombie problem in the town. I don't know. That seems like locals should handle their own, you know, crises. Take, take care of your own problems. No, not even that. Just like, you know, outsiders coming in to ta- to help with, I don't know. I've got my own problems to worry about. Yeah. I can't be dealing with all this. <laughs> um, so what was kind of behind that decision to, to keep us in Avuba a little longer? In a, in a way, it feels kind of like... In a video game, whenever you first start out and there's like a little area where you can run around and learn how to jump and... Right, like the starting village or whatever. It yeah. is that. Like It's very much modeled after kind of like the starting village. It's a good way... What I'm using the Avuba arc here is to kind of set tone. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's kind of part of it is to kind of show the players like this is the world we're kind of going to be playing in. Like we did a session zero and we've talked about it a lot and like what the game's going to look like. But yeah. I wanted to start with a little small self-contained adventure that gives them sort of a taste of what this whole game might sort of feel like. Although it is in a town instead of the deep jungle. Well, in a way it's nice because we, we can see our players learning one, like the home rules. We can see them learning their builds a little better, finding their feet in their characters, so to speak. So that way... Uh, once we get into the jungle, then we're really off to the races and there isn't any lag time. Well, that's the hope anyway, yeah. This is a good adventure to set up just a little mystery that I kind of had a, an idea around. I think it's going to be really kind of fun, even though the players don't seem to have picked up on it. But it's nice because this gives us an opportunity to see some of the new rules that we're playing with, specifically fear effects. Uh, I thought it was so fun that Kafka got spooked i thought that was i thought that was kind of delightful it's a delightful technical term spooked yeah i do like that a lot i've been spooked yeah you're spooked it's scary yeah i I found it really interesting because often if you fail a will save it's strictly penalty there is no upside to failing a will save 99.9 percent of the time Mm -hmm. um but it looks like in a way this the fear effect is giving him a degree of like kind of a nod to his adrenaline level spiking. He has, a, I believe, a plus one to his initiative roll. Is that correct? It is, yes. There's a plus one to your initiative roll. There's a plus... Uh, it's a, no, it's a minus two to perception because you're, so, you're looking around and everything. Yeah. You're all bewildered and stuff. I like... Well, th- these are from um, Horror Adventures, which Paisa put out a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. It's a book that focuses a lot on like turning a Pathfinder game into a horror game. 
because Pathfinder doesn't necessarily lend itself very easily in a, its vanilla product into being a horror game because it's such a power fantasy. Right. So what the horror rules do is that they added a whole bunch of like creepy spells and like creepy ideas and and the fear effects were designed to in in vanilla Pathfinder fear is a three stage process. You're scared. And then I think it goes straight to like frightened and panicked, right. right? And it's like, there's not a lot of discrepancy. So it's like, I'm a little scared. And then it goes straight to, I'm running away. Yeah. Which can work in a game where fear isn't as important because right. like, you know, it's just like one of the other status effects, right? Yeah. But if you're doing a game where it's meant to be scary and it's meant to like, oh, the characters are scared often. But that you don't want them to just run away. Right. Like yeah. every encounter can't just be like, our characters run away again. Like it's just. We're just so afraid. It's so, like that would be awful. So <laughs> what the fear effects do is that they divide that, those three tiers up into, I think it's nine stages, I believe each. Oh, each. wow. That's a lot of stages. Wait, wait I, I want to guess at some of the names and you can tell me if any of them are right. Okay. I'll pull so, them up. So there's spooked. Yep. Is there a scared? There is scared. Not it, a scared, but scared. Is there zoinks? There's not zoinks. Is there gadzooks? Is there... Oh, I'm wrong. There's seven. Oh, okay. That's a... Yeah, that makes a little bit more sense. So what are what are the what are the tiers of the fear effects? Okay, well, to go over the tiers of the fear effects, it starts off with spooked, which is just kind of like... I think, <laughs> it's like haunted house, right? Yeah. Like that's the level of, of what you should feel. And then shaken... Is like is, is that just standard shaken? Standard is like as shaken as you know it. Okay. Where you're just like it's like negative two penalty to a bunch of stuff, right? Right. And then the one after that is scared. Okay. And those are the what's that's the divided up into lesser fear. Okay. And all of those effects are uh like just like penalties to a degree and mm-hmm. like kind of replicating how your character might feel if they're afraid on like a mechanical level. Scared's the worst one out of those because it counts as shaken, but like the effect is worse. And if you get hit by another fear ability, that's also a lesser fear ability. Yeah, you get staggered, which just means like you lose your round. You don't run away, but you're like paralyzed with fear for a round. Okay. Yeah. It's fun because I feel like fear, up until this point, has very much lived in kind of the role play uh, realm of things for RPG. Like you, the player, are like, oh, I'm just gonna be frightened but having the this fear effect template really allows you to like mechanically say okay how does that impact my ability to perform yeah it's definitely like they definitely took nods out of this from games like call of cthulhu Mm -hmm. which are much less power fantasies and more about you know like there's a thing in call of cthulhu where like your character is the strongest your character is ever going to be in that game is at the beginning of the game when they haven't had anything happen to them yet. Mm -hmm. Because nothing good is going to happen to your character, really. It's just you're just going to go crazier and crazier and get more and more scared. And so there needs to be levels of fear in that because you're not as powerful, right? Yeah. And so that's where I think that mechanic is kind of birthed from are those kinds of concepts. Yeah, because like... Yeah, I guess because Pathfinder is all about like the hero, like you're the hero, right? Yeah, it's a it, it's a power fantasy. Yeah, but at the same time, like I don't know, heroes can be afraid. Heroes can be afraid. You're right. Pathfinder doesn't do horror super super well. Like even I have a like, horror adventures at our side, and we're going to be using that a lot for like inspiration and mm-hmm. mechanics stuff. But like at the end of the day, Pathfinder is not a great system for horror because it's a power fantasy, and it's always about like the, at the end of the day, you're. Your characters are going to defeat enemies more often than run away from enemies. Yeah. And and those are just kind of like out of balance from each other. But I like enough about like what I like about Pathfinder and this kind of game is like I enjoy tactical combats and I enjoy big splashy fights and heroic moments. I just want them to be like have like a horror and fear kind of um, 
spine, right? Like that's yeah. I think that's the way we're going for. It's not going to feel like a complete horror game all the time. Yeah. Because that I don't know if I even have that in me. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, this episode, we definitely had a little bit of body horror. Yeah, you the, did. Uh, with the bot flies. That was so gross. Oh yeah. my gosh. Did not, I did not love that. But also like that is part of this campaign is like scary, creepy stuff happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a great kind of foray into that, into that territory very early on so that we get a taste for it and we kind of know a little bit more of what to expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I would really love to talk to you a, a little bit about dungeon ecology. That was something that came up and you and Alan discussed very briefly in the episode. Yeah, Alan loves good dungeon ecology, apparently. Well, let's let's dig into that and like talk about dungeon ecology a, okay. a little more uh, and how you kind of build that out. Just to recap, dungeon ecology is making a dungeon feel like it exists in a world where there are like logic and rules. They might not be the same logic and rules as our world, but they do exist. Good dungeon ecology is about like making your world just make sense, right? You know, your your characters go into a sealed tomb that no one's been in for 10,000 years. Like it wouldn't make sense if there's a bunch of hyenas in it, right? Like yeah. that's bad dungeon ecology. Like what were the hyenas eating? Why were they there? It begs a lot of questions. Yeah, it starts begging questions. Like you have to like make your world make sense. Like populate your dungeons and populate your encounters with creatures that make sense given the situation people are in which can be a little bit more quote-unquote like homework intrusive like you have to start to really like know the bestiary a little bit to a degree but also i think in a way it provides structure for you right like you're like well i'm in a jungle my combats are probably going to have jungle based creatures within them even though you want to think about what makes sense for the world yeah what makes sense in a jungle what kind of regular animals are they going to encounter what Mm -hmm. kind of fantasy animals would inhabit a jungle all of that stuff so going back to kind of the in-game example we had the bot flies that were clearly like living in this wet moist tower environment that had been exposed to the elements and then in the next room, there were two boars that had clearly been in, that had clearly encountered the bot flies and were then afraid and hiding from them, but also had larvae kind of ingesting in them, right? To birth new bot flies. So it, in a way, like it's its own little ecosystem mm-hmm. in a gross sort of way. It's a gross little ecosystem happening there. It really is. And there's probably mushrooms that the bot flies or the boars, whatever Alan yeah. was going on about. <laughs> yeah. Like, but that's really fun because when I first, when I was like, oh, there's a boar. I wonder why there's a boar. And then I was like, wait, well, the tower is just like a crumbled ruin at this point. Mm-hmm. It's open to the, it's open to the environment. Um, there's water in here. So it makes sense that animals would come in. And then there's the bot flies. And now the boars have these welts on them. I see it must be because of the larva because our players just experience those things and it really lends like, a, okay, I I understand now why everything is happening the way that it's happening. Now, here's a question that I have for you. Mm-hmm. If one of the characters had decided to try to do a handle animal check at the board to try to calm them down, would that have worked? Okay. Because they're just scared animals? Well, here's the thing about that. Yes and no. By the rules, that actually isn't how handle animal works as oh. a skill. Everyone kind of... Everyone assumes that's how it works. Like, I'm really good with animals. Yeah, that's actually how it works. (laughs) Handle animals specifically about training animals. You need, like, an ability called animal empathy in order to use, 
like in order to calm down a pissed off animal. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just something like an average person with like, a really good like handle animal check can do. It's like it's supposed to be like relegated really to like the more nature based classes. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, but but even so, like, let's say let's pretend. Well, I don't know, Chrissy. I don't know if the shifters have it or not offhand. It's such a new class. Mm-hmm. But like, let's say someone was playing a druid and like they had animal empathy. Yeah, yeah, I would have allowed for that. That's totally fine. Cool. Uh, in this case, why? A, I like single combats are bad. Like, if there's like, I don't like single combats in general. I try to Wait, avoid them. What can you define a single? A single combat? combat is like when the players are fighting one single enemy, mm-hmm. right? Like, the, in general, those don't work very well because of what the action economy of a game is. That like the players each have a turn, and the bad guy has one turn, and the bad guy can generally probably get a lot less done, even if he's more powerful. Like the back, the like your players have a lot more time to like gang up on them and destroy them, right? right. And like it just it'll go down quickly. Mm-hmm. It don't work as well. Uh, and sometimes like then that's fine for a lot of stuff, but like sometimes you want like a bit of more interesting combat. You have to add more bodies to the field, but then it can become complicating when you're trying to make like an encounter not too powerful. There's a whole like rhythm and dance to how to design a good encounter. So with the boar encounter here is I really I kind of came up with the idea of boars. I like the idea of boars being in here. Like they felt like kind of jungleish and kind of like scary, but also kind of benign, right? Yeah, and also it matches the aesthetic of the of the mask. Of the mask, yeah, like that all kind of like worked out well. All right, I, I don't remember what I named. I don't remember what I came up with first. If the mask was there or the chicken the, or the egg, I can't the, ma- the mask or the boar. Yeah, I don't. I honestly don't remember. Like the boars are a little strong. So to counteract that, like I came up with the idea they've been affected with these bot flight welts and that has hit their constitution and they have less HP than normal boars. Got it. Okay. So the fight was a little easier, but there were two of them. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it, there's definitely something to be said, speaking as like a player and not a, a game master. I like busting into a fight, being surprised by how easy it is and then like just killing everything right away. I, oh, yeah. I like that. But at the same time... I also really enjoy fights that are challenging and that have moments where you're like, oh my gosh, like, are we gonna, can we do this? You 100% need both in a campaign. Like, you mm -hmm. need, you need battles where people, where your players can feel like, I'm a badass, look at me go, I twirl my dagger and I killed five people in my turn (laughs) and it was amazing. Yeah. And like, you need that fight, but you also need the fight where they're like, oh, we're all gonna die this fight. Like, it's happening, yeah. And so we're all gonna die. Like, this is, and like, they give you the look where like, is this really a TPK? And you're like, yes, it is, motherfuckers. Whoa. Yeah. You gotta, like, you can't be nice. No, I guess not. But also, like, the game is designed for the players to win. Exactly. So as much as, like, a game master is like, I'm coming for you. Yeah, it's always the, yeah. th- like, that's the joke. It's like, I like to always joke about, like, I'm gonna kill all of them. But, like, that's not fun. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's if, not- <laughs> if, if, if there yeah. ever is a TBK, like, I've only ever had a TBK once, like a total party kill mm-hmm. in my, like, decade plus of game mastering and everything like that. Like, I have done it like all of once. And I think also Pathfinder is very much built so that once you get past, I want to say level five, Mm -hmm. you have access to things that make death more of a status effect than a permanent loss of character. I don't know if five is a little early for that, but like, yeah, in that range, I think it's like, like eight or nine. Like once, like once you get like real resurrection spells and things like that, like Mm -hmm. it, Death is more, yeah, death, death exactly is more of a status effect, like a Final Fantasy game. Yeah. Than it is like, oh, my character's dead. Time to roll up a new character. Yeah, like the early levels, I think, are really the ones you have to worry about. Yeah. Your character, in a way, has to like be scrappy and kind of earn their place to survive to the point where they can be resurrected. Right, exactly. Because at lower levels, 
like resurrection, the price for resurrection based off like the game's rules themselves, like how much it should quote unquote cost mm-hmm. in gold pieces to resurrect a character should be kind of prohibitively expensive at that point. Right. But by your, the time you're like mid levels, it's a for, it's not, it's expensive, but it's affordable. Mm-hmm. If you want to bring the character back. Yeah. I loved the basement. I loved oh. all the details of like the bones rattling and kind of ebbing and flowing towards the central chamber, almost as if it's like waves rippling. Yeah, out. kind of ripples of ripples of bones all over the ground. Yeah, it's like a, it's a fun aesthetic, and I I was really delighted by it. Did you like pull that from any specific? Just like no, that was that was just kind of I don't know. That was just something I kind of came up with. I guess I was just trying to imagine. In my head, the idea was like Tavik's Tower, you know, a hundred years ago was probably this like epicenter for this dread necromancer Tavik and, you know, like was like five stories tall and like full of like monsters and horrors and magic and then like, you know, but since then, like this hero from a hundred years ago destroyed it and like destroyed him and like it's gone. Like that, all of that stuff was defeated. Yeah. And so all that stuff is kind of like the trace of it, the memory of it. And I felt like I didn't want... It to be like, oh, there's like this obvious, like super powerful magical force here because there's not anymore. It was defeated. There's just the traces. There's like the, the yeah. remnants of those concepts left. Yeah, I believe when Alan did maybe a, an Arcana check, I can't remember exactly which one it was, but you specifically said there was a great power here, but that power has been fading over years and years and years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In a way, it's just like kind of degrading over time. Yeah, I like the idea like of Tavik because Tavik is. Like, very much, I think at this point, we, we, we can safely say a red herring. Like, he's like, yeah. he's the red herring of the whole thing. And so that was the whole point, is that, like, all these tales of, like, this dread necromancer, and he must be coming back. But it's like, or what if he's not? Like, what if it's just, like, he's a fading, dying ghost? Yeah. Who wants his face back? Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about that moment. Um, listening, I feel like sometimes whenever you have a little bit more, like, distance and perspective, listening to a combat or a riddle or something that players are encountering... You have the clarity of thought to be like, oh, it means this, obviously. And that doesn't always happen when you're in the heat of the moment role playing and mm-hmm. like worrying about like fighting floating skulls and all of that. Um, I personally feel like you made it relatively clear, but that doesn't like it doesn't matter what myself or other listeners think. It matters like how the player characters take it. And like you could play that encounter with like a bunch of different people in different groups and they might all come to different conclusions. But I guess my question for you is whenever there is some sort of like riddle or encounter like this where things aren't what they seem, but at the same time, the message isn't getting across to the players. What are ways that you can deal with those moments as a game master? There's always the idea that you can keep trying to give them information. Right. But... You can only give them so much, I feel like. Right. right. And eventually, like, if they just don't get it, then they're just not getting it. And that's okay, too, for the most part, because then you can do the revelation when, like, you reveal something where, like, they just didn't put something something together. I think, like, the question, like, what's really hard is that, like, you want, as a dungeon master, to be, if you want to try to set up a good riddle and a good mystery, a good puzzle, yeah. you have to try to give enough information to like for them to be able to solve it but then when you do that like i've had this happen where like they suddenly start like spitting the information but then like they start adding stuff you a never told them mm-hmm. they just start making things up and they build and like then and then like they believe that what they made up was true it happens all the fucking time like it's it's so nuts is that is that maybe a good potential remedy for that if you're giving a riddle or if you're giving some sort of like prophecy or door clue to have it like written down so that you like hand it to them and then they just have it there so that can the, help so for all sure. the information is right in front of them i also noticed in that combat 
Um, you definitely weren't keen on them just being able to like sit in this room and like kind of ponder and talk it all out. Skulls kept manifesting. The, the issue kept being prevalent. They defeated the first couple skulls, then more came up. Oh, they it was defeated a haunt. Those, yeah. More came up. So it was like, this isn't just going away and this isn't, this, this is a riddle. It's a haunt. You have to kind of like go figure it out now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my other question is, when they get back to the Emerald Inn, Malik's father kind of comes out and is like, oh, the legend of Tavok? I'll tell you about it. Uh, was that something that you had already, you had always kind of assumed or were you just in that moment using an NPC to give a little exposition that you felt the players really needed? Yeah, I did not necessarily plan that ahead. Like I knew who, I knew that Malik's father was a prominent person in Uvuba and like, you know, you have like a list of like minor characters who could appear in the scene or in a game if you need them to like there's like you know a couple like four or five people just to flesh out right just have like a just be able to pull up somebody be like oh this person lives in town talk to them in this instance it made sense for Kolsu to talk about it because it ties into Malik and like it gives a little kind of more information on him and yeah I felt like I needed the PCs to know a little bit more about what they were looking for, yeah. What yeah. they're looking for and what the situation on the ground was. It needs to be clear because it's what the frustrating thing is. Like you want to be clear and good and like op- and like vague enough where it's a mystery, but then you don't want to be so vague that they are never going to get it. But then it's really frustrating because then you'll feel like they aren't like they're get, like you've told them something that's like the like the vital piece of the puzzle, but they just don't seem to remember it. And but then if you remind them, it's, you're basically just telling them the answer, and that sucks. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, well, it sounds like there's a lot more of a Vuba to explore and discover. I'm really excited to see what happens for Tavik. I feel bad. Poor Suresh is just so excited to go on his expedition yeah. and like everything's holding him up. Poor guy. Um, we met a couple other NPCs this game. We met a cat, I believe a cat folk laborer, correct? Uh, yes, Sagus the cat folk laborer. And a human laborer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Deontae, I think. Yeah, none of them have really been given names at this point, but oh. it's just like a cat folk and kind of like a dowdy dude who knew mm-hmm. where the tower was because him and his sister used to play over there, which also I think is in a way a clue as well because if the tower area used to be safe enough for children to kind of like goof around and play nearby, it doesn't make sense that... This has been an ongoing threat. Yeah, there's a little, there's a lot of that kind of thing. Like, also, like Tavik had nothing to do with like a hatred of foreigners. Yeah, like there's a bunch of like it's supposed to like be like the idea of, like there's a whole bunch of clues to spell that something isn't quite landing correctly. Cool. Well, to close out, I'll ask you the question that you yourself posed in one of the episodes: Does Scooby Doo have an intelligence score? Does Scooby? Yeah, yeah. Scooby Doo has an intelligence score. He can kind of talk, so he's got at least like an intelligence score of four or five. Yeah, I agree. So if you're going to stat up Mystery Inc., we talk about these things sometimes, like just in oh, our yeah. day-to-day, like... Stat this. Stat this. How would you stat Sailor Moon? Stat Although, Fluttershy. Yeah, exactly, right? Like She's a druid. Aw. But I guess, like, how would you stat the members of Mystery Inc.? I feel like they, they all must be kind of Inquisitor-based, like multi-class Inquisitors. You mean Investigator? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're probably all Investigator-based, I would, I would say. For all of them, like investigators and then you could either do like shaggy you could do shaggy and scooby as like hunters i guess they're not good though no like not good hunters (laughs) no one ever fights in scooby-doo so that's kind of hard like everyone just like they rely on traps they all have like trap making oh there you go that's That's what it is they all all have like the ability to create traps that's like their big thing 
That's a good one. I like that. And then I think the fear effects in Scooby-Doo must be very strong because they're constantly running away. Yeah, they get really scared all the time. Of like, it's Always never, spooked. They're always spooked. It's always in, Because I, I watched an episode, episode of Scooby-Doo to kind of prepare for this adventure. This Like the whole adventure or Avuba specific? specifically. Oh, that's fun. Uh, I watched an episode of Scooby-Doo because it's been forever since I've seen an episode of Scooby-Doo. Right. Just to kind of remember the beats of it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a goofy show. <laughs> <laughs> it like, really is. They get really scared. Like I always found the idea of like, oh, they're they're running away from the Iceman or whatever. But then it's like, what are they? What do they think is going to happen if they get captured by the Iceman? What what's he going to do? There's like four of them. Yeah. And one of him. And one Iceman. Or they're just spooked. Yeah. Well, no. At that point, they'd be they'd be frightened. I think. No, they're running away. You're right. Or, yeah. But Shaggy and Scooby are nearly always panicked. They're always in a state of, of at least spooked. Yeah. Constant state of spookery. Yeah. Unless they're eating Scooby snacks. And then, oh, what are Scooby snacks? They grant, they're like a magical ability, I think. Maybe it grants Magic heroism item. or something. Yeah, that's fun. I don't know, something like that. Aw. Cal, thanks again so much for sitting down with me to talk about this these last two episodes. Crunch Golem Smash! <laughs> It's not. No. We'll keep brainstorming. We'll keep brainstorming what to say at the end of these crunch episodes. Crunch on, maybe? Ugh. That's, uh, how's that better than crunch golem? Uh, I believe what you said was crunch golem smash. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening in. And we will see Cal and the rest of the gang next week as they explore the docks and hopefully solve a mystery. See you next time. Mythos Manual. Be sure to check us out on our socials at Mythos Manual or our website, mythosmanual.com. May all your rolls be 20s.